Challenge League Group B, Afghan politics, and a chat with Peter Delapena about his new book. All that and more on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick, and with me are the two regular EC Pod members. First in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? I'm very well. Um, strange weather, as always, as I guess most most people are aware. If it's not bushfires, uh, getting pelted with hail up here in Brisbane, but uh, otherwise good. Lots of cricket going on, so... Sleeping patterns have been okay with the games going on in Dubai, but no chance whatsoever to watch any uh, Qatar T10 cricket, unfortunately. Bez, how are you? How's the rabbit? How's the dog? What, what's happening? Uh, so, yeah, back uh, back at my normal residence, uh, the dog was fine, I think, when I left it, so hopefully all's good there. The rabbit, well, I'm just picking up its uh, its droppings everywhere, which I'm, I'm not a huge fan of doing. Seems to be wasting my day a little bit, especially when there's plenty of emerging cricket to watch. Uh, unable to, to see too much of that Qatar T10 as you did uh, discuss there, Tim, but plenty of Challenge League and Cricket World Cup League 2 action to watch in the Middle East, which uh, had a little bit of unseasonable rain, which we might get into in a little bit. But first, a man who's probably seen quite a bit of emerging cricket over the last week with all the streams available, Nick Skinner, better known on Twitter as Copernicus Cricket. Nick, how are you? I'm very well, Bez. Uh, it's getting to that time of year, isn't it? You know, lots to do, lots of errands to run, stuff to tick off before everyone heads heads to the holidays. But yeah, been all right. Yeah, I've got to get uh, cracking on some of the the Christmas shopping. I've been a little bit lax. Uh, Let's jump straight into the first topic of discussion today, and it is Challenge League Group B in Oman. Uh, And we've seen Uganda go five from five. The cricket cranes have come, not from out of nowhere, but it has been a surprise. And as we record tonight, if Hong Kong were to lose, which they don't look like doing, but the scenario is there, then Uganda would go clear by five points at the start of Challenge League Group B. It's an outstanding start for the Ugandans, Nick. Yeah, especially after, well, they have struggled quite a lot in, in recent years, especially in the 50-over format. But even, I mean, even thinking back to the Africa finals where Nigeria finished ahead of them and ended up at the global qualifiers due to Zimbabwe's misfortune. You know, yeah, I think Uganda, it's fair to say, have been underperforming for, for a number of years. And yeah, it's, it's good that they're getting some combinations right. You know, looking at that middle order, they've really had a solid platform that's been able to keep them in the game. And, and that's been a recurring problem in the past for them is just uh, serial collapses. So the fact that they have found a bit of uh, bit of solidity there is really holding them in good stead. Geez, they've found some uh, some batters, haven't they? Yukani's uh, been been great, but there's some some names that have sort of come out of nowhere. And it's funny to think, isn't it? This is a team that would have been relegated uh, down to Division Four if World Cricket League had continued. Look how well they've performed here. It probably is the the biggest argument for getting the Challenge League up and running and and bringing or combining those World Cricket Leagues together, really, isn't it? Well, we're looking at some of the key performers, and from the from the ball, Bilal Hassan had a five-wicket haul in taking five for 27, finished with 10 wickets. But, of course, the usual suspects of Nsubuga and, and Senyondo were outstanding. But you look at the batting, and there were some consistencies throughout Uganda's approach here. If you look at some of their high individual scores between Ronak Patel, uh, Shahzad Ukhani, and Dinesh Nakrani, as well as Arnold Owani, who actually had a, a 62 not out against Hong Kong, they've been able to create a platform 
platform with with one guy who's able to be the rock at the top of the order or at least in the middle order making runs and, and everyone else working around them it seemed like a, a pretty good tactic there Nick yeah it's interesting you, you we talk about how cricket evolves and and seeing a, a one one sort of anchor guy and the team batting around him is a, it's a very um, old school uh, one day international strategy and it's just sort of an interesting observation that the further down the divisions you go the more I guess the further behind is and that's sort of how it is really the the teams are a bit further behind so they, they play an older fashioned style whereas you look at someone like Scotland who's really playing a, a very modern brand of cricket and so it, yeah it's quite interesting to see that it, the old older style game is still quite successful the, at the lower levels. How much do we think this is, we're going to get, I guess, to the other other teams, but to do with the conditions there, it really seems to have been, I think, for the first time in many World Cricket Leagues of a win-toss and bowl situation. I know there was one one day where play was rained off completely. You think of the golf, you don't think of the rain, but we've also lost a, an ODI in the League 2. I, I don't know, does, does that mean that the starting that early in the morning, is there just too much in it for the bowlers early on? Because I don't think any team has actually won the toss and, and batted, have they? Yeah, well, you look at Uganda again. They won three out of their five matches chasing totals. I know one of them was only a, a small total, but that's what it has looked like. We saw, I think, uh, Hong Kong and, and Kinchit Shah, and, and you would have watched this with great interest, Tim, chasing that high Bermuda target in the 290s. And we've seen, yeah, teams uh, look a little bit more successful on, on the chasing side of things. Uh, to go to Hong Kong... Uh, properly now they they should be too strong for Kenya today uh, overall you you would say it was a, a positive campaign and Kinchit Shah well we we knew he had the quality to be a high class all-rounder at this level but given that Baba Hayat and Anshi Ratha are gone he's had to step up a little bit but he, he's really shown that he can do it Tim Absolutely. And I'd like to say that we told you so because we all talked about how good he was and he's just proven, well, what what a 2019 he's had. If I know it's not really the, the right thing to do is pull an individual's numbers out of a, out of a team, but if you, if you look at his numbers across both formats of cricket, I should say, of 50 overs and, and T20s, he was great in Namibia. Um, under fire really with the team capitulating around him and needing to finish in that top four and that didn't happen how he played in the, the qualifiers and, and then now he's, he's been great so he's still young and, and what a future ahead of him uh, if they uh, are able to get up over Kenya I think they'll be very happy leaving here with three wins and a rain off of course every team would have liked to have won every game but the way that Uganda have played five and five the net run rate uh, 0.743 for Uganda I guess isn't as big as it, it could have been but that's across five matches is that my meaning that they, they, they won't be too hard to reel in on on net run rate but someone's got to catch them first on points but yeah impressive from hong kong wakas barkat back in the squad as a mainstay after a couple of years in the wilderness good to see him really solidify his spot in in the middle order and a few young bowlers coming through including aftab Ahmed, who celebrated exactly the same as a certain South African by taking his um, shoe off and um, putting it up to his head and uh, pointing a batter off to the um, the change rooms. <laughs> so, look, a bit of spunk is good, but uh, yeah, look, one batter at the top, like Nazakat scored 50 against Bermuda, I think it was, but the consistency is just needed there up from him. Like, he's still averaging 30 plus in, in ODI crickets, and, and sorry, List A cricket, which is great, but when you don't have the stalwarts around him, that can hold an end up while he's going at it. It's a tough one for a player like Kat to, to know his role. But the bowling again seems to have been good from Hong Kong. And um, yeah, look, like I said, they'll be they'll be happy. But I guess in this competition, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's the uh, only team that matters to go forward is first place. 
I think that is a bit harsh. I would have liked perhaps to to have a maybe a top two or a, or a playoff or something, but obviously uh, that was just a financial decision and in terms of structuring the tournament. But yeah, it makes it pretty tense. Potentially, I'm just a bit worried though. Looking forward, that you you'll have one team solidify their their place there by the second of these challenge leagues, and and everyone will already know, and the rest of the games will be useless. Which I think is just one of those little things they possibly could have kept an eye on when designing the tournament. But it's a it's a pretty minor quibble because as as you said, you know, before the challenge league started, I was a bit you know on the fence about how good it would be. But I'm I'm a big fan of this, and I, yeah, I think it's uh, proved me wrong that the the depth really is there in terms of. Um, creating exciting tournaments all the way down. Yeah, well, for the sake of this tournament, if Hong Kong do move to seven points and remain in touching distance with Uganda, it, it opens it up a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it is one sort of fallback that we do have with a competition like this. But it is a, a little bit more stable in that those old world cricket leagues were quite tricky in that, you know, players and teams didn't really know where they were heading next and, and the cycles made it very difficult. So hopefully they can find that happy balance um, and then looking towards qualifying or at least the path to qualifying for a Cricket World Cup. Uh, some other teams to, to go through here and Nick, I'll probably start with you. The the Kenyan struggles look to continue. Also, Jersey were, were a little disappointing. They haven't really kicked on after their, I suppose, their positive uh, T20 World Cup qualifying campaign and a team like Italy who started well seem to have fallen off there towards the end yeah Kenya oh, it's, it's another one of those uh, yeah they're enigmatic I guess they um in perpetual crisis off the field it really sort of it does show itself and but they they have a huge amount of quality in their players and this is we saw this in the T20 World Cup qualifiers with you know, some great individual performances and and same again here you know we, we you saw the Raket Patel century against Jersey that was a fantastic innings and it nice to see Lameka on Yango, well, I was, I was quite dubious when he was selected, but he's pulled his weight as a seamer, the uh, the 46-year-old. Uh, I've been doing a bit of digging. I think he might have the longest uh, one-day, well, international one-day career span at over 23 years. I know Tendulkar was um, around the 22 years mark for his uh, ODI career, but of course, these games aren't official ODIs. He's still a long way to go before he uh, reels in Wilfred Rhodes, who, who played Test cricket for England for over 30 years, but well on the way, I think. Yeah, the Patels, I don't think they're related, sort of digging into the, the records a bit, but they, they've been very impressive. And Irfan Karim again. But the, the bones of the Kenyan batting lineup, at least, are there. It just seems that they're not able to bat around these guys for when there is a sort of a good innings every match. It seems to just be those people. And when the two Patels put on 200 plus, one on 99 not out and one on 101 not out, they chase down a, a 200 plus target with ease. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, maybe that is symptomatic of what's been going on off the field in that they're, they're not getting the consistency in their preparation and therefore that is translating to a lack of consistency on the field. And after years of threatening Uganda finally beat them in a competitive outing which was good to see it made our Ugandan correspondent Dennis Masali extremely pleased quick shout out to him. Yeah a couple of final points before we do move on Julius Summerau was really the only bowler of note for Jersey. Uh, we did see a debut for Daniel Birrell who took 4 for 20 against Bermuda but it was Bermuda who have been rather poor in, in this tournament and it looks to be a, a continuation of their tumultuous qualifying campaign for the T20 World Cup as well. So things definitely need to be sorted out there. Yeah, we, we sort of, as you said, as, as we saw it, the, the qualifiers had a couple of good individual performances and, and those have continued with Kamal Levrock absolutely whacking it at the top of the order. His uh, strike rate is 168 for this tournament and the next best, I think, is around 105 from uh, Jonty Jenner. So he's batted really well. Rawlins and Manders have been okay up the top there, but uh, yeah, 
everyone else has really struggled with the bat. But yeah, the big problem is just the bowling. You know, the fact that they couldn't defend 290 odd against Hong Kong, and it was a fantastic innings there from from Kinchit Shah to to get them home. But PDP Peter Delapena, uh, who we'll hear from a bit later in the show, when we discussed uh, Bermuda's qualification from the Americas regional final, he he made the point that Bermuda's bowling at that tournament relied a lot on the conditions and um, when they don't have the assistance of the of the home pitches which allow those um, you know medium paced seam guys to, to really get a, a lot of assistance their, their bowling is pretty toothless and we've seen that throughout this this tournament well it has been a disappointing campaign for Bermuda and as we said before a continuation from the difficult campaign at the T20 World Cup qualifier another tournament that has been going on in the Gulf and has also been affected by a rain is the Cricket World Cup League 2 uh, leg in UAE between the UAE USA and Scotland we'll cover that in depth next week as uh, we're about halfway through that at the moment uh, let's move on to some political stuff here or at least some off the field stuff here from the emerging side of things and sensationally uh, Askar Afghan has been reinstated as Afghanistan's captain in all three formats from now on. Uh, we've seen Gulbuddin Naib come out on Twitter and blast a few people and threaten to come out with some more news. We also saw Phil Simmons during the World Cup threaten to come out with some news as well. Tim, where do we begin with this? Askar Afghan probably rightfully reinstated as the captain of all three formats of the Afghan team but whichever way you look at it, it's uh, a tricky period and it doesn't look to be a settled setup in the Afghan camp. Gee, we go back to uh, the juxtaposition of Ireland with their off-field administration and on-field performance and, and Afghanistan. Deary me, there's just more and more scandal. They've gone through chairman um, of the ACB like it's going out of business and uh, they've got a new CEO. The Afghanistan Premier League was postponed for a year and they're accusing Snicks of Sport, the partner there, of being corrupt. And now after a questionable decision, you have to say, of putting in Gulbuddin Naib into the skipper spot, they've just uh, yanked him and here it goes. So well, there's always always that chat about nepotism in and around Afghanistan cricket, how much of it is true. Who knows? Not that close to know that, but it's going to be very interesting to watch. You know, some big calls being made there by a current, well, as far as we're concerned, a current member of a, of a Test Nation national team. So yeah, that's all we can really say right now, but it's not really what the sport needs for a, a game that it brings joy to a country that's been going through so much for so long um, I just hate to see this happening to cricket to their, their national sport yeah it is massively disappointing not what you want to see I mean we were we were saying that bringing back Ashgar as the captain potentially wouldn't be a terrible idea and and I stand by that I think he'll he'll do a good job but yeah the, the way it's happened is very messy and you know the allegations that Gilbert and Naib is uh airing well somewhat vaguely on Twitter sound very bad and you know as you allude to the nepotism as well and you know there's a lot of uh people on the team whose family members are involved in administration so it's certainly um, a a messy situation and yeah hopefully it can get cleared up but from where I'm sitting which is on an armchair half a world away of course um, I don't really see how it can be cleared up because as you say they've they've been going through their admins churning through them really and nothing has really changed in in that respect so I don't know what it'll take something something pretty drastic. Well hopefully we do see a resolution in the near future we know a number of Afghans are coming out here to play 
play in the Big Bash as well as some of the other T20 leagues around. So they have got a little bit of time for a regroup and hopefully some positive news coming out of Afghanistan because we do want to see them flourish. As Tim said, it is the national sport there. Let's go now to a chat that we had with Peter Della Pena, of course, from ESPN Crick Info, who's recently released a book. Tim and I managed to catch up with Peter during the week. Have a listen and uh, enjoy the wise, dulcet tones of Peter Della Pena for the next 40 minutes. Once again, joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, it's a pleasure to have ESPN Crick Info journalist Peter Della Pena. Peter, how are you? Never better, Daniel. Thanks for having me back. Well, if you weren't busy enough already, Peter, you've just completed a project in writing a book. First of all, congratulations. The book is called Inside the Selection Room, Quest for T20 Cricket Stardom. For the layman, Peter, how did you set yourself on, on the way to this project? Uh, what did it entail? What was a light bulb moment? And uh, what's the book about? The project started back in 2015 when the ICC Americas office announced they were going to do an open trial. And it was basically something I had had in mind for a couple of years up to that point where I was hoping to write a story. And basically what the original idea of the story was was built around was these kind of fly-on-the-wall documentaries and fly-on-the-wall books and articles I'd seen in various sports mainly with football, you know, a series like Hard Knocks yep. uh, for people outside of America. It's, it's about NFL preseason training camp. HBO takes one team every year and they basically get insider access to all sorts of pre-game planning meetings, post-game uh, reactions, and because over the course of the preseason that Hard Knocks is filmed around, they cut, they make a series of cuts and it's all centered around trying to get down from about 80 to 100 players down to the 54-man opening day roster that's the league limit. And you get all these very fascinating stories that unfold and the main inspiration, the original inspiration that I drew from was a book called No Medals for Trying, which was a book that came out in 1990 that was written by a local New Jersey sports icon named Jerry Eisenberg, who was a very famous columnist at the Newark Star-Ledger when I was growing up. And it was him falling around the New York Giants for a week in the life of the New York Giants, basically during a, a game in the 1989 season. And you get to see the inner workings. You get into the minds of the coaches. You get into the, the minds of what the NFL is all about from the end of the previous game on a Sunday, going into the training room on a Monday to see how guys are healing from injury. And the game game planning that begins basically as, as soon as the final whistle blows on a previous Sunday. The coaches are basically locked in on maximizing all seven days to prepare for the next game and they just dissect all game film from their opponents over the course of the season and it's just a very intense process and the language that's used, if, if you read No Medals for Trying, it was, it was a very kind of niche book at the time It's, it's and it was not widely published beyond New Jersey but it gave you incredible insight in terms of, yeah, how Bill Parcell how Bill Belichick prepares the, the language that they use reading that book it was like understanding the the coaching dialogue that was used to diagram plays and discuss plays in coaching meetings it might as well have been a foreign language to analyze and call plays and everything that goes into it and, and it just shows you how strategic and intense and how everything is very choreographed everything is very planned even though to a casual observer you turn on an NFL game and I'm sure it's like this for other sports for casual fans turn on and everything just looks like the whistle blows and it's just chaos everything is just spontaneous but there's a very very sophisticated choreographed sequence where everybody's supposed to have a specific assignment and if one assignment gets blown that can open up a touchdown and that could lead to a guy getting cut and losing his job and um, all these things are, are part 
parts of these fly-on-the-wall documentaries, whether it's in book form or television series form or movie form. And I'd never seen something like that in cricket. And it was something that I had had in mind and, and wanted to pursue as a project for cricket purposes. The only issue was getting that kind of access. And especially in U.S. cricket, I had ruffled enough feathers over the years with USACA and other administrations that I, if I had requested permission to get into a selection meeting discussion to be able to document it as fly-on-the-wall for USACA, I never never in a million years expected them to approve it or even consider it. And so, and and, this, and to be fair, the same goes for other boards. The selection processes are very secretive, or at least they give the appearance of being very secretive. Nobody really wants to divulge selection meeting discussions. They're always considered very private, whether it's Australia or England or any other country. Nobody wants to divulge the exact details of why a player's been picked, why he's not been picked. And I thought, here's my opportunity. Because at the time, USACA was suspended. There were some issues with players and the Canadian board where there was a, a bit of unhappiness, typically players feeling aggrieved at, at the selection processes. And um, so the ICC Americas decided we're going to open this up to the entire region, not just USA, not just Canada, but anybody who's an associate country in the Americas. And we're going to put out a fair process, an open process to welcome anybody who wants to try out and make a 15-man combined squad to go to the uh, West Indies Regional Super 50 tournament. And, and so I thought, here's my chance, because I thought the ICC is very, very determined, especially the ICC Americas Regional Office, to make this as transparent as possible. And so in my head, I thought the ICC is kind of acting like Switzerland in this sense. They're a neutral party. They're determined to demonstrate to everybody that they're open and fair, almost going to an extreme to, to demonstrate to people that they won't be having the controversies that USACA had with selection processes over the years in any other regional war. And I thought, well, why don't they put their money where their mouth is? And if I ask them, hey, why don't you allow me to observe the selection processes and be a fly on the wall and I can write a story about it so you can prove to everybody that what you're saying is true, that this is an open, transparent, fair process. Why not let me come into the meetings and see what's going on and it would be an opportunity for me to do this fly on the wall story. And as many people know, even the ICC at times is very obstinate with, with how they give access to things. But the person I approached, Tom Evans, who was one of the regional administrators at the time, he was actually very open to the idea and discussed it with Tim Anderson, who was at the time the head of global development. And I had to do a bit of cajoling, but <laughs> it basically came down right up until the eve of the trial. There were discussions took place over the course of several weeks, right up until the night before the trial started. And they um, brought me into the meeting with the coaches and the, and the independent selectors who had been brought in, which included Courtney Walsh, Mike Young, who... Australian fans would recognize as the fielding coach on three of their World Cup title one runs in uh, 2003, 2007, and 2015. Former American minor league baseball coach, but had a lot of success after being brought on board by John Buchanan. And then Venkat Spahaki Raju, who played test cricket for India as a spin bowler. They had brought these guys in, the ICC Americas staff did, to make them the lead selectors. And then they also brought in some local coaches as support staff and support coaches to just give a little bit more insight. But they were very firm. The, the three lead selectors are going to be these very three esteemed coaches who've got extensive backgrounds, extensive resumes, led by, again, Courtney Walsh, Mike Young, and Raju. And uh, the night before the trial started, I sat with these coaches, and um, they just addressed some of their questions and concerns about what my intention was in the process and, and um, wanted to make sure that it was going to be done in a, in a way that was not going to embarrass or humiliate them. Because, again, there's, there's a sense of unease at times of how it's going to be portrayed or what... Um, 
um, sensitive discussions that are being had over the various players, and they just wanted to make sure it was going to be done uh, in a way that was not going to tarnish their reputations. And and they got the assurance uh, from me and got the confidence that I was basically going to just record everything. My intention was sit in the back of the room, put the tape recorder on, not disrupt anything, but I just literally wanted to give readers out there and players, coaches, other coaches, just an insight. What goes on in a selection meeting? How do players get evaluated? What goes into identifying whether a player is good enough or not good enough to make a cut? Everything beyond the scorecard that a high-level coach picks out. And over the course of the two weeks of that trial, I got to sit on every single meeting, record every meeting, and it just was incredibly fascinating for me to be a part of that process in an observational capacity. It changed my viewpoint on, on how I analyze players myself, seeing how they operate and what they look for. And then from there, the project took off because it wasn't just about how the guys did at the trial and how the guys made the team, but what happened after they made the team. Did they justify their places when they went to the regional Super 50 where they were going to be competing for a place with CPL franchises six of the players who were going to be in the Caribbean as part of that 15-minute Super 50 squad were going to get rookie contracts to be in the CPL and that could open up all sorts of opportunities from there for the rest of their career. So that was kind of the genesis of, of the project and it kind of continued on over the course of several years until I guess I was looking for an end point to wrap it up with it and Ali Khan's breakout summer in 2018 was kind of the fitting uh, end point because he was one of the original 15 players who came out of that trial and, and before that trial in Indianapolis he was an Oba in the grand scheme of things in U.S. cricket, but he showed up. The opportunity to be a part of an open trial was there, and he'd been ignored by Usaka. And he said, here's my chance. I'm going to sign up. He showed up, and he was judged on merit. His past resume and the other resumes of players before him didn't matter. They just saw somebody who was very talented, very skilled, made the team, and that's kind of the start of his journey becoming a T20 franchise regular. Uh, and without that trial, who knows how and when he might have been able to get noticed in US cricket. You've talked about you thinking that this was a good idea for a story and not necessarily a book. Can you talk through your, your thought process and then the actual step-by-step of how you go, go about actually getting a book published from, uh, from th- this sort of first idea to today launching a book again that was kind of um unintentional (laughs) because the story again it was meant to be a feature article and i had seven and a half or eight hours worth of selection room dialogue alone from the selection meetings that took place over the course of two weekends in indianapolis and the original premise was just to focus on these selection meetings and what goes into picking a squad not the actual performance of the squad itself when they went off to the trinidad and i don't i don't do things uh very concise or in a a very brief fashion on most occasions. So, um... Yeah, so on, on the first draft that I put with these selection discussions, which were, again, very detailed, very nuanced, with the exception of one meeting, each each selection meeting went on for more than an hour. And um, the first draft that I put together, which comprised both weekends of this two-weekend trial, where close to 100 players were being evaluated, it was 20,000 words, basically. And there was no way it was ever going to be published as a feature article for 20,000 words. And the instructions I received were to 
get it under 3,000 if it was ever going to be published. So I tried to focus it just on one weekend as opposed to two weekends. And even doing that, the closest draft I think I got down to was about 5,000 words. And I just felt every time I trimmed something or slashed something or cut something out, that nuance was being blunted. And especially when I when I first met with these coaches, they were really concerned about making sure things were not taken out of context. And the more I edited and the more I slashed and the more I burned, all sorts of context was being lost and all sorts of nuance was being lost. And I just personally was not comfortable with seeing how it was happening in terms of cutting out so much because it was a very, very detailed, uh, intricate process. And I felt if I continued on that process from 5,000 words after starting at 20,000 words to get it down to 3,000 words, there would be a distorted impression of what actually occurred versus what was being presented in a 3,000 word feature article. And after fighting and fighting and fighting just internally to try and figure out how to make this happen at 3,000 words, where the closer I got to 3,000 words, basically the more unhappy I was because it just, it did not resemble anything like what had happened inside those meetings. I just thought, why why am I fighting so hard to try and tear this down and limit it to 3,000 words? Why not go in the opposite direction and expand it, stretching the project out, seeing what happens after they go to, to Trinidad for the Super 50 Tour, seeing what happens at the CPL draft, seeing what happens, what these guys do in the first season of the CPL and or beyond. And so I went from yeah trying to cut down 20,000 words down to 3,000 words into expanding 20,000 words into something longer over the course of uh, an extensive period of time that, that could become a book. And that that's basically how the, it turned from a feature into a book. And then it, the, the challenge was finding somebody who would be interested <laughs> enough to publish it, which every book I've ever come across written about U.S. cricketer, American cricketer, North American cricket history, by and large, these books are all independently published because books on, on U.S. cricketer, Canadian cricketer, North American cricket is quite a niche field. It's not a mass market field by, <laughs> by any stretch. And so what formerly was known as Create Space was kind of this online independent publishing platform that was bought out by Amazon and turned into their Kindle Direct publishing platform and makes it very easy for a writer such as myself and, and it's become quite a popular vehicle where they digitalize it so they only print as and when people order so that's that's how it kind of got into the publishing stage the man on the on the front cover of the book is uh, ali khan a man who you've <laughs> followed quite a lot over his career and, and he was a benefactor of uh, of the combines that were held and you were there when he talked to you about working in a mobile phone shop in ohio and now he's, he's on the global uh, stage of franchise cricket and international cricket as well with all the stuff he's done for, for the USA. To, to bring it back to what you've done here and what you've potentially learned on, on this journey, we know that you're a pretty analytical character. Anyone who's seen you around the grounds is taking, you're taking photos, you're doing ball by ball stats for yourself and, and then obviously putting together articles and, and writing at the same time. How has this assessment of players by being a fly on the wall helped you become perhaps more even more analytical about uh, your coverage of, of USA cricket and, and world cricket around because I'm sure some of the intangibles that have been discussed with multiple selectors and, and being in these selection rooms, how has it actually helped you in terms of of your work in, in cricket? Just in, in terms of being able to make pure evaluations, it's been immense seeing what a coach looks for. I mean, you get, getting the insight and literally getting into the mind of somebody like Courtney Walsh or Mike Young or somebody else who perhaps I was most impressed with, who's kind of somebody who's not really well-known globally or even even outside of Australia, even within Australia. Justin Stearns, who came to the Combine as the head talent scout for the Queensland Bulls and the Brisbane Heat Big Badge franchise. I think I was pr- uh, probably impressed with him most of all. He was 
incredibly precise in his evaluations and, and how he spotted a player and the things he looked for coming as an outsider from, from Australia to the U.S. And the things he imparted on the local coaches from the USA, Canada, and Bermuda were quite influential. And just things to do with everything outside of a scorecard when you're looking at a player in or outside of a match scenario, how they're playing spin bowling, how they're playing short pitch bowling, how they're they're playing swing bowling, and that's for batsmen. And then conversely, how bowlers are approaching certain situations and things like bowling Yorkers at the death, which is basically how Ali Khan got noticed at the first weekend when it was basically, again, an open trial. They had more than 60 players show up. And then at the second weekend, what happened was the plan, the original plan was in place. Eight players were going to be nominated out of this initial group of 60 plus players. And they would advance into a second weekend of pre-selected players who were from the USA, Canada, Bermuda and Suriname, players who had been part of the T20 World Cup qualifier squads in Ireland and Scotland that previous uh, summer, a few months prior to the combine, who were standout players, somebody like Timbal Patel and Akeem Dodson, uh, Stephen Taylor, Nikhil Dutta, that kind of player. They didn't have to go through the first part of the combine. They were just invited straight to the second weekend to compete with the, these other players who were making it out of the first weekend. So getting to see how somebody like Justin Stearns or Walsh Young ID'd the unknown players to advance and compete against the more established names was hugely insightful. And as an example of, of kind of the, how it influenced my mindset, this was three years later in 2018. The USA cricket ran their own combines, not ICC, which is USA cricket, USA players only. And just to kind of toot my own horn a little bit, Monak Patel showed up to a, a national team combine trial in Houston, Texas, after being identified earlier at a, a regional combine. And anyway, I would put these rankings of players on a day-by-day basis at the end of each trial match at these camps of who stood out, whether scorecard-based or non-scorecard base. And Monak Patel, on the first day of this national team trial in Texas, scored I think it was like 20 off 40 balls or 21 off 40 balls. And there were a couple of players who made half centuries. And in my rankings, I put Monak Patel as the number two player of all the players I'd seen that day based on an innings of 20 off 40 balls. And when I posted that online, I was mocked quite viciously by a lot of people who are not in Texas saying, how on earth could you rank somebody number two in your list of player rankings based off of an innings of 20 off 40 balls you're a joker, you're a clown, you know, what kind of nonsense is this? And I put in the analysis, this guy was technically very correct. And he just looked like a player who would transfer those skills to the next level if he got an opportunity. And I tried to explain this to people and I was still mocked and, and ridiculed about it. And then the next day of trial matches, he goes out and scores an 80-ball century and he gets that kind of validation to go into the national team. And over the course of the last 15, 16 months, Monarch Patel along with Aaron Jones have basically been USA's two best batsmen. And I would not have been able to kind of learn those analytical things in terms of the technical skills and the, and the just very precise player traits in terms of what a selector and what a coach looks for in somebody like Monarch Patel who might not jump out in innings of 20 off 40 balls to the average person. But because I'd gone through those experiences and just been a fly on the wall in those meetings in Indianapolis in 2015, he would jump out at you and he would be somebody who your mindset is changed. You do appreciate the things he does. And I think those are the kind of things that people who pick up a copy of the book and read the book and get to be exposed to the selection discussions, much of which are introduced verbatim into the early chapters of the book. They're, everything's intact. So you get to see the back and forth between coaches and the debates and the discussions. And you do get that appreciation for what a coach does. And, and it, I hope 
hope it will change the mindset of breeders, fans of cricket, but also especially coaches and players, players themselves who go into these trials who might be frustrated or might not understand why they will make a team or why they won't make a team and things that they need to focus on in terms of what will be appealing to a coach, what will be appealing to a selector, regardless of how many runs they make or how many wickets they take. Because again, Ali Khan is an example. At that trial in Indianapolis, he did not take a lot of wickets. He was not among the leading statistical wicket takers on paper, but he had a skill, bowling Yorkers, that stood out, was crystal clear, and Courtney Walsh was somebody who identified quite early, I want somebody who can bowl Yorkers. And he put, as one of his key objectives at the trial, I want the best Yorker bowler, and he's going to be in the team. And that basically was Ali Khan. And that skill, bowling Yorkers, took him through that combine in Indianapolis, took him into that 15-man squad to the West Indies, took him into the CPL draft, and and got him drafted uh, initially by the guy in Amazon Warriors, and has continued to sustain him now all over franchise cricket, um, which is which is quite remarkable because again, other things he, he's not he's not bowling 150, and he's he's not doing some other things that would make you go crazy, but he's got a very precise skill that any coach would be desperate to have. We've had uh, Tim Wigmore on the pod with he's released his Cricket 2.0 T20 book, and that is written with Freddie Wild, who's a who's a stats man these days. And they go in depth about the, the money ball-like nature of not only scouting but also coaching. How did that relate to, to what you saw in the selection room and, and around and, and how much were those sort of really analytic um, strategies and, and, and outlooks employed? I think it's tough to translate that into an associate framework from the standpoint that, and this was also an objective of, of why I wanted to do this, in, in that money ball mindset, in a, a money ball uh, kind of strategy works in a professional cricket setup where you've got exceptional amounts of data to look at. And that data includes video footage, includes scorecards and statistics and ball by ball and tracking and all that. And whether that's cricket or any other sport, when you've got an excessive surplus of data that you can mine, you can take that kind of money ball approach, whether it's baseball where basically on base percentage surpass batting average, which forever had been the traditional metric in terms of what is more valuable when you're, when you're identifying a, a hitter in baseball, um, you know, and, and in cricket, there's things, money ball type stuff with, you know, bowling and the power play and, you know, bowling at the death. And uh, I know Tim and Freddie have analyzed this, that you can't just have, and they're trying to stress th- through that book and in other avenues, you cannot just have a flat economy rate that you judge a player on. A, a, a bowler who bowls a seven economy rate in overs seven through 14 is not the same as a bowler who has a seven economy rate at the death or a seven economy rate in the power play. Um, and so those things you can apply in a professional atmosphere where you've got all these data points at your disposal. It's much more challenging to do that in the associate world where the video data is very limited. The match data is often very limited and you're kind of stuck in a sense of, of, trying to, to go back to more um, traditional metrics, especially in, in, a, in a situation like this where, again, most of these guys were players who hadn't gotten opportunities, hadn't been seen. 
how do you how do you apply Moneyball to somebody like Ali Khan at this trial when he'd never played for USA before? What are you basing your the Moneyball off of? So so in the, in, the, in that sense, it was a very um, kind of going back to the basics of traditional um, scouting evaluation techniques and um, trying to identify players that way uh, in kind of an associate atmosphere. But but but. Again, once somebody like him has has been identified through this process, and he graduates into a professional atmosphere, then those money ball principles can be kind of merged with those traditional scouting tools. So, so I think the the point of this book, from that sense, shows that there is still room for traditional scouting principles and traditional evaluation techniques to to still have a place in cricket, um, working around the kind of new age analytics of kind of that money ball style. What's happening in USA cricket and what do you foresee over the next year or so when, you know, out of coming out of competitions like this, which it sounds like is quite positive from your point of view and that they're a lot more competitive, which sees improvement, but they've got some important games coming up in terms of cricket world cup league two. And then also hopefully another round of qualifiers for, for a T20 world cup. From the, the coaching standpoint, yeah, it's a bit of a cloudy picture because James Payment, the interim coach, he's only going to be there through the end of this tri-series. His full-time gig with um, Mumbai Indians is not going to allow him to be a candidate for the full-time coaching role with USA. And so I think some people, including myself, are wondering, well, why did they not start the head coaching search several months ago? Because they knew this about him. And in spite of the bit of progress he's made with with some players in the, this Super 50 tour and whatever's coming up in the UAE, you're just going to have to go back and start from scratch, more or less, in January for whoever takes over full-time. So why couldn't they have started that process in September, October, instead of waiting until another couple months? Uh, and until that shakes out, it's, it's kind of a cloudy picture in one sense for U.S. cricket, but there's still quite a bit of promise on the field. I mean, some of the newer players in the squad, Cameron Stevenson, I was very impressed with how he entered into the team on this Super 50 tour. And he's somebody who, because he's no longer contracted in in uh, first-class cricket in Australia with Tasmania, he's somebody who could be quite available for USA to contribute, whether that's in this tri-series or going forward to Nepal in February when they've got another tri-series coming up uh, in the Cricket World Cup League 2 competition. So there's some promising signs on the field, but I think... Yeah, there's also some, um, I guess, uh, nebulous picture about the direction of the national team in 2020. And as a byproduct of that, the administration, these, these three jobs coming up, they're very exciting jobs. But I think people are kind of unsure about what exactly the direction is that it's going to be set by the people who take on these roles until the the appointments happen. But I think the hope is that they will get a competitive field to to um, apply for these jobs and enhance the the uh, administrative atmosphere around U.S. cricket uh, in the wake of what was a very bumpy period after ODI that is with Pubudu, Des and I could going out and some other administrators uh, having an exit and um, just a lot of instability that came in that had had an influence on results on the field. 
once again, the book is called Inside the Selection Room, Quest for T20 Cricket Stardom. Brilliant work again, Peter. Uh, fascinating and, and fantastic to have you on. It's a pleasure uh, after having you a, a few times on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Uh, so a huge thanks goes out to you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if we don't speak to you before Christmas, have a great Christmas. And speaking of Christmas, this book is a brilliant gift idea for friends and family out there. So make sure uh, to put this one under the tree. But yeah, once again, thanks a lot, Peter, for, for joining Tim and I. Thank you guys for having me. And yeah, just a reminder, it's available on Amazon.com, whether that's Amazon.com US or many of the various Amazon sites in different parts of the world, Amazon UK and Amazon Canada and Amazon elsewhere. Uh, it's available directly over Amazon. So by all means, head to Amazon.com and that's where you can get it. And if you're in a place where Amazon doesn't uh, ship or you can't get get Amazon, then I'm also selling the book directly. So people can contact me either through my Facebook page or on Twitter at Peter Dolpena. And um, I will do my best to sort out a way to get you a copy of the book. Peter, I know I've said congratulations to your face, a little too close as we we're driving at uh, 130 kilometers an hour between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, but congratulations. And I'm looking forward to not only the barnstorming sales of this book, but uh, the movie version, because I think there's a re- some really great dialogue in there that I think, and I'm not sure what bit will get carved out, whether it's a story of Ali Khan or who knows who will come out of this, but I think there's some some great stuff in there. And look, if you're a cricket fiend, and I, I don't even think you need to be a, an emerging cricket or USA cricket fiend, I think anyone that loves a game will really get a, a bang out of this because it just really gets to the heart, as you said, of, of what goes on in the mind of, of coaches when they're scouting. And I, I any up-and-coming cricketers as well should read it to, to know what coaches are thinking. So uh, congratulations, my friend. Thank you, Tim. And, and yeah, I have fond memories of our journey along the Sheikh Zayed Road. Look, you didn't get me out to uh, Five Guys this time, but uh, there's always, I don't know, you you coming out for the Women's T20 World Cup? Uh, yeah, look, is not good since USA did not qualify, but <laughs> you never know. Well, you know, we've got... Global qualifiers and T20 World Cups and all well, the men's T20 World Cup, I guess, will have the, the back end of 2020. Are you going to be there for that? Or again, with no USA, does that mean no you? you you've got to be there, surely. You, you were there at the qualifier. No USA always oh. makes it a challenge, so, so we shall see. Well, that's a bit of a downer as an end of it, but anyway, well, <laughs> yeah. hopefully we see you and and, uh, and well done. Oh, thanks, gents. And yeah, no, like like you said, um, just someone won point on on the book yeah i mean it's it, it's not something specifically that it's confined for associate cricket fans courtney walsh again was one of the lead selectors and he just wrapped up a four-year sit with bangladesh now he's back in the west indies and to get insight of of how somebody like courtney walsh who's one of the leading wicket takers of all time in test cricket and, and has now got an extensive coaching record how somebody like him goes into picking a player doesn't matter if it's an associate cricket player or a player in Bangladesh or a player in the West Indies, the same principles apply that Courtney Walsh puts on players wherever he comes across them. So uh, that somebody like him or, or 
and Mike Young, who was with the Australia setup for a decade plus, uh, and, and Venkat Tapati Raju with, with India. I mean, it's not just about evaluating associate players. It's about seeing how a coach in, in one of these high-level atmospheres, what, what they identify in a player and those traits are universal. So if, like you said, there's a kid or a player or another coach who's looking to reevaluate how he's picking and choosing a team. And this book is, is definitely up your alley. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast for this week. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your favorite social media platform and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, from myself, Daniel Beswick, and the boys, Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.